I do hope you will join us next Sunday as we celebrate Reformation Sunday and commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation with Christians across the world. In preparation for this uh, big anniversary this month, I've been preaching a series on the key themes of the Reformation, which we're continuing today. So far, we've explored the first two solas of the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. These showed us that God saves us by grace, not merit, and through faith rather than works. Today we come to the third and final of the original solas of the Reformation. Scripture alone. The Latin phrase is sola scriptura. How do we know who God is and that God through Christ saves us by grace through faith? We know this by Scripture alone. God's word written. God's own self-revelation. Scripture is to be followed over tradition, even the tradition of the church. Scripture became an important part of the Reformation movement in the 16th century in Europe. John Calvin, the father of our own Presbyterian Reformed tradition, spoke of Scripture like corrective lenses, like spectacles that transformed and fixed our once blurry vision of who God is and who we are as God's people. Scripture alone remains an important mantra in our Presbyterian tradition today, as the Bible remains the primary document in governing the church. Everything the church says and does has to somehow go back to Scripture. Our denomination's Confession of 1967, I think, says it best, when it claims that Scripture is not a witness among others, but it is a witness without parallel. Our first reading was from Paul's second letter to Timothy, reminding him that all Scripture is inspired by God, that it is God-breathed. It spoke of Scripture's ability to teach, correct, and guide one along the Christian journey. Our responsive psalm contained the beautiful and well-known verse, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now as we turn to our second reading, we look at and look to John's Gospel as he describes how the eternal word of God became flesh and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. I invite you now to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the very beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh 
and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. There is a well-known and and a frequently used preacher story out there about a family who invited their new pastor um, over to their home for dinner. The family, in preparation, got out their best linens, laid out the china and silver. They even blew the dust off their old family Bible and put it on display, you know, to make it look like they read it together every night. They had a wonderful time meeting their new pastor. There was just one little problem. After the dinner, they realized they were missing one silver spoon. They were afraid to ask their pastor about it, and eventually they moved on. A year or so goes by, and they have their pastor over for dinner again. This time, they weren't quite as nervous, so they didn't go through all of the formalities. During the dinner, one of them couldn't help it and shared how last time they had this person over, their pastor over, they ended up missing a spoon afterwards. The pastor paused for a moment and said this, Oh, your spoon? I put it in your Bible. (laughs) I say this story not as a guilt trip, but more as a way for us to wade into the idea of Scripture alone. So far in this series, we have learned a little bit about the famed reformer Martin Luther, whose act of nailing 95 theses to the University of Wittenberg doors on October 31st, 1517, we're going up on the 500th anniversary, this is looked to as the beginning of the Reformation. Luther was an Augustinian monk and also a scholar. He lived a life of simplicity, but also of obedience to an order. This obedience and order, while it was well-intentioned, Luther became concerned that it, like the church, was too deeply rooted in tradition, rather than being guided solely by God's Spirit speaking to us in Scripture. He felt that the church had adopted practices that were completely outside the realm of Scripture, and so Luther sought to restore the primacy of God's Word in the church. In one of his best-known sermons, Martin Luther said, looking back over his life and his ministry, this. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Luther sounds a little humble here, but The word was at the heart of his act of reforming the church. Every grievance he had with the current church, every change he proposed was found not through tradition, but through scripture. One of the most significant acts of Luther was translating the Bible from Latin, which only priests and scholars knew, to German, the language his community actually knew and spoke. This proved to be a watershed moment, eventually helping reform the Catholic church as well. Instead of having to go to a priest to tell you what the Bible said, you could go ahead and open it and read it for yourself. It helped another fundamental mantra of the Reformation, and that is the priesthood of all believers. The monumental work of translating Scripture into the vernacular 
uh, of spoken languages of the world, this ministry continues today. As faithful folks, oftentimes at the risk of their own lives, seek to translate the Bible into the languages of their people. This work that Luther began is still going on today. But Luther, Calvin, and the Reformers also were sure to describe just how Scripture became the guiding force of the church. Without the work of God's Spirit, the Bible is just a book. But when God's Spirit illumines our hearts and minds, we are able to hear God's Word through Scripture. In other words, God needs to intervene in order for us to catch a glimpse of God in Scripture. Calvin particularly believed that there was something uniquely powerful about God's Spirit at work when Christians read Scripture together in community. This is why each Sunday, today included, before we read Scripture together, we say a prayer for illumination, asking for God's Spirit to illumine us, to open us, to inspire our hearts and minds that we might hear God's Word for us today and respond in faith. During the Reformation, the sola scriptura message was misunderstood at times. The Roman Catholic Church then believed that Luther and the other reformers had turned the Bible into an idol, that they worshipped and believed in the Bible instead of God. This is what sparked some of the counter-Reformation movements of the 16th century, uh, like the Jesuits, among others. Friends, this is an important lesson in church history that reminds us that we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who reveals God's self in the Bible. And so the centrality of Scripture, of God's Word in guiding the church, this has remained a crucial part of our Reformed tradition all the way to today. The 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth distinguished in his own writing, he distinguished between the word written, which is Scripture, the word proclaimed, which is the sermon, and the word sealed, which are the sacraments. All of these things bear witness to God's word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Today, our order of worship in the Presbyterian Church is such that uh, the word is always central. Take out your bulletins for a moment and look at the bolded headings in your bulletin today and every week. First, we gather. We gather together as a community of faith to hear God's word. Next, by the help of God's Spirit, we hear God's Word read and proclaimed. Then we respond to hearing God's Word by affirming our faith, praying for others, offering our gifts and ourselves to God's service. This is also where we would celebrate sacraments, God's Word sealed and enacted. Finally, we go out with God's Word. Worship is centered around the Word. Worship becomes the model, then, of Christian community and life. The Bible, that is God's word, becomes the means of grace by which our lives are transformed by Christ. God's word made flesh. This, friends, of course, leads us to our gospel reading this morning uh, from the very beginning of John, where the gospel writer describes God's eternal word from the beginning becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The Greek here quite literally means God pitched a tent. Or as pastor and scholar Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. To me, this passage is so crucial 
uh, for our understanding of Scripture, of God's Word alone in guiding the church and the Christian life. In this poetic little passage, the Word of God goes from being an inanimate object to flesh and blood, of God's own being and self. The Word of God here transforms from a prescriptive rule book to a relationship. Instead of do this and don't do that, it's follow me. The Gospel writer John hints at this in his poetic prologue when he says that all who believed in Jesus became not holier or more righteous than everyone else, but rather those who believed became children of God, born not of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit. Scripture, that is God's word written, is how we come to know who Jesus is. This relationship is lived out by faith in the Christian community, the church, where we gather together as a community of forgiven sinners, led by Scripture, to follow Jesus, who is the head of the church and God's own word made flesh. Friends, in the Christian life, Scripture becomes the means not only by which we know who God is for us in Christ and that God loves us, Scripture, that is, our daily journey with Scripture, our lifelong journey of reading Scripture, becomes the means through which Christ can transform us, allowing us to see God's grace and sharing that with others. This is the beautiful poetry of God's Word becoming flesh. It's no longer a do this and don't do that. Friends, it means follow me. In the end, friends, we don't believe in the Bible. We believe in Christ. The object, the focus of our faith is not in a book, but in God's own word made flesh. It is God's word alone, illumined and breathed by God's spirit, that we are able to understand who God is for us in Christ and who we are as the children of God. May we ever be transformed by God's word written, proclaimed, and enacted that we might better follow our Lord Jesus Christ, God's own word made flesh, and share his love and his grace with the world around us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.